0: Hey, what's good? This is Jay Khadija Abdul-Akman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Shout out to Columbia University's American Assembly and Insight Center for helping to make this happen. Today is Tuesday, March 23rd, 3.32 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm here today with Marquise Bay, an Assistant Professor of African American Studies in English and core faculty member of Critical Theory at Northwestern University. Their work concerns Black feminist theorizing, transgender studies, abolition, and critical theory. The author of several books, including The Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism, most recently, they are in the midst of revising a monograph entitled Black Trans Feminism to be published in 2022 with Duke University Press. Bay is committed to thinking rigorously and radically about subjectivity, Blackness, non normative gender, and thoroughgoing abolition. Um, And I just wanted to add that um, also recently published uh, Anarcho Blackness Notes Towards a Black Anarchism. But Marquis, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I wanted to give you a chance to share anything else you'd like about yourself beyond the kind of formal, traditional academic bio.
1: Well, I really, really appreciate that. Um, And thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, That was a wonderful introduction. Uh, And I also just had like, like three months ago, just had another book come out um, called The Problem of a Negro as a Problem for Gender, uh, in which I think about um, non-norm- non-normative gender in uh, conjunction with um, this Black critical theorist Naomi Chandler and how he's understanding the figure of the Negro and Blackness. Uh, so that also just came out uh, with University of Minnesota Press back in December. Um, but yeah, I'm just really excited to, to be here to chat about some things and yeah.
0: Yeah, dope. I, I, you know, I wrote this, I think my excitement came through in the email, even though that's a really kind of constrained format. Uh, But I remember so clearly when A. Millie came out um, Mm -hmm. and it just immediately, I mean, one is that I'm always arguing that like academic knowledge production need not be suffering. I mean, it can have rhythm. It can, you know, make you feel when that like, Funk Flex drops the bo- drops the bombs on High Ninety Seven. It can make you. Why like why can't rhythm be the epistemic form? And I know that you also say you're not a fanboy to Wayne, yeah. uh, but I just really appreciated the way that you use that as an entry point to think about blackness, to think about transness, and to think about fugitivity. And I was just thinking about that moment in time that I was at when Emily came out in the wake of Katrina like a postscript to when the levees break before mm-hmm. Spike Lee took the NYPD money and mm-hmm. Ray- Wayne coding out and choreographed a pardon out of 45. Mm-hmm. And also just personally, a year after Katrina, I saw when the levies break um, premiere in the Superdome with people in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's just, that feels like just such a pivotal moment to kind of understand this layer of pandemics right now. Um, and maybe just as a way to start off is can you talk about your, your connection to the song and like how you're thinking about them going rules.
1: Yeah, of course, of course. Um, I remember fondly and not so fondly when that song came out. Um, and I think I note this in the book, um, but when, when that song came out in 2008, I was a sophomore slash junior uh, in high school. And I played football in high school and everybody on the team is singing that song, that refrain, that riff. And I'm like, y'all need to shut up right now. Uh, it was just it was a lot for me. Um, but for me, there's something incredibly potent, um, incredibly um useful and beneficial um in uh in that song in particular um in uh the moment uh, right before the uh, the first hook um in which he in which he says tell the coppers ha 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 you can't catch them you can't stop them i'll go buy them room rules if you can't beat them then problem uh and that and that's of course where i get the title of the of the text from um but there's something there that's that's indicative of a certain kind of disposition or a certain kind of posture in the world um, that relates for me to a kind of political subjectivity. This notion of gone by them goon rules um, that is in kind of juxtaposition or even opposition or subversion to the coppers. This kind of uh, this uh, this instantiation or representation of whiteness of a kind of certain kind of masculinity um, of the law of enforcement, punitivity, all these things. So. If the law, uh, if the coppers uh, have a certain set of rules, then to go by them goon rules is to be in opposition of that. And for me, there's a whole bunch there um, with respect to blackness and non-normative gender. If I understand blackness and non-normative gender, as these kinds of fugitive dispositions, which is simply to say, um, as um, the scholar, black feminist scholar, Tina Camp says, fugitivity is a quotidian practice of refusal. And that's how I want to understand blackness and non-normativity. And that's where um, Lil Wayne's line uh, is so potent for me in this kind of opposition to the law the coppers and going by alternative or goon rules.
0: No, nah, I really appreciate you ending on that point because I was thinking about how you opened the book talking about non And mm-hmm. I was wondering, have you ever read uh, Bartleby the Scrivener by Herman oh Ogun?
1: Yes, yes, yeah, I love that. I love that short story.
0: I love that. And also I, I, was, I binge watched, um, you know, however people feel about this, but I binge watched Slava Dizek talks the other day. And <laughs> there's a whole series where he's wear, uh, wearing a T-shirt that says, I would rather not to. Mm-hmm. And I was just contrasting that to this idea of nonness and how does like blackness resituate refusal? Particularly, like, there's a way for me, Bartleby, the scrivener, the protagonist, and there it's like ceding to the powers that be. And frankly, I, d- I didn't know until recently that Zizek had kids. And so I was thinking about his refusal in the face of like capitalist desire mm-hmm. and that there's this unspoken, his wife must be watching the kids, right? Like, who's watching the kids mm-hmm. while he's out here writing, you know? tomes every um quarterly critiquing mm-hmm. capital mm-hmm. and so if you could comment a little bit on wh- what is particular about blackness as refusal
1: yeah um so yeah i love that um The nah uh, and like that i remember a conversation i was uh engaged in in grad school uh and there was I, I brought up the notion of refusal um and there was a a slight misreading of how i was understanding that and someone uh was talking to me about uh, how how limited perhaps the the no is, and for me I said that it's not a no. Um, it's not it's not that I this is an example I've given before, but it's not that um, someone punches me in the face and then I punch them back. Um, it's not that um, which is equivalent to me um, to a no, but it's a swerve. It's a ducking the punch. It's an, it's a refusing to engage in the fight on the fight's terms, and that to me is what the nah is. Um, it's this kind of it's a it's a, it's a no with a swagger, perhaps, uh, and that that is where the where, where the blackness comes in. And for me, I want to be clear, too, it's not simply or even solely or even primarily a kind of a epidermal, epidermal or skin color blackness. That's certainly there for sure. And there are ways that history works through um, the, the skin color uh, and in ways that that's uh, structural and institutional, all that. I get that. But for me, I'm understanding blackness via um, a black critical and performance theorist named uh, Fred Moten, uh, who understands blackness as as a, I'm trying I'm trying to speak about this in a way that is really clear and precise. But blackness for Moten and for me and for other people, Denise Ferreira da De Silva, black feminist theorist, um, Hortense Spillers. Uh, they're thinking of, about blackness as this um, philosoph- philosophical skepticism uh, and practice of invention um, that is rooted in a certain kind of refusal of the the whiteness and masculinity and normativity of the law. And so, if I understand blackness in that way, in a way that uh, is unconcerned with or subversive of these various regimes of captivity and categorization, in that way, then then the the blackness of the nah comes up because if. We have all these things that are attempting to categorize, um, that are attempt- attempting to label uh, and and circumscribe, even to put um kind of boundaries around. Then the na is a refusal of those very terms, um, and that's that's the thing that I want to speak to. That's the thing that I hear in Lil Wayne's uh, going by them goon rules. Um, it's a different set of criteria, a different set, a different kind of sociality um, that is not at all um, concerned with the ways that we are. That we purportedly have to do things here and now. Uh, it's a it's a a dreaming of a different way to be and interact and be social with other people and even to imagine one's identities and, and subjectivity. So uh, the Na is is in that um, and and it's a way to to really think radically outside of um, the various uh, tentacles of capitalism, anti blackness, trans antagonism, etc.
0: Nah, thank you for that. And I was just thinking. You know, for me, I spent a lot of my time thinking about predictive analytics in the child welfare system. And when I'm speaking to people outside of tech and they're like curious about algorithms, they're ready for me to like put some Einstein nonlinear algebra, algebra equations on the board. And I'm like, most of it has nothing to do with advanced computer science. Like so much of it is predicated on amassing interagency administrative data. Mm-hmm. And within this data, there's always a kind of a hyper classification around race, around gender. And I think the initially a lot around facial recognition, there has been a debate around ethical AI and ethical computer science about facial recognition being unable to recognize black faces and yeah. whether that problem should be addressed with being able to better recognize black faces. Although I will say we're at a point where I think there's a significant portion of the resistance who realizes that, that at least that particular technology is only built in service of the state. And so we probably shouldn't be trying to scan ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's in reading your book, I'm always coming to it and thinking about how it connects to technology too. And particularly around classification. And when I'm thinking about this blackness and refusal, I was just going to your chapter and then Google's three thesis. You're, mm-hmm. you're citing Moten and talking about what is the materiality and physicality of Blackness and that Kant and Du Bois would agree that simple description doesn't close come close to getting at the animaterial metaphysical thing in itself that exceeds mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious to hear you talk about like a refusal to classification. What is What does Blackness say about categorization? And I think that relates to, in another section you talk about, it's not about litigating, People's usage of the correct pronouns, but being a mm-hmm. wrong subject. Yes. Um, and so I'm just curious to hear any kind of thoughts you have on that.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, so uh, for me, I find I find there to be utility uh, in uh, not being recognizable uh, because I mean the state will throw everything that it can at you in order to quantify and categorize and classify you, uh, and once that happens. There are then ways that uh, we appear on its grid um, and then are forced to or coerced to to operate by its logics uh, and t- so to be unrecognizable by the grammars of the state um, and all the logics that it has entailed in it um, is there's there's a utility there um there's a benefit there um there's a way that that is a kind of refusal or escape from uh the state in its grammars um so i don't know i i get i, I think i get the um the utility sometimes uh or even the the ease with which we can move through the world when we are recognized in certain ways when we kind of fit the fit the classification and then can move on seamlessly i get the the kind of affective ease in that and moving through life um but for me there's there's so so much utility in uh being unrecognizable precisely because that then means that we are um engaging imagining uh navigating different kind of grammars that might be then the way that we uh, interact with other people, with the world, et cetera. Uh, so I want, to, I want to try to hold out some hope for the way that we might, we might be unrecognizable. Um, and then how that relates to Blackness then is if, OK, so if Blackness in part, and, and I want to always say in part because I don't want to presume that Blackness is totally defined or overdetermined by some kind of a anti-Black or white supremacist source. Uh, but if blackness in part is um, to be subject to the state's grammars, which then mean that it is subject to subjugation, some subjugation and uh, and violence, um, then then how might we then think about blackness um, in excess of those things, uh, in excess of? How we might be um, defined or curtailed by normative registers. Um, if we think about it in a different way, or if we understand it as operating literally on a different plane of intelligibility of sociality, then that gets us—that um, allows us to be unenthused with, unenthralled with um, having to um, presume that we need to be on the the terms and conditions of the state. Uh, so if we if we understand it as outside of and in excess of those things, then we can better feel uh, seamlessly at home perhaps uh, with being unrecognizable and thus outside of or at least in part outside of the the grammars of capitalism and anti-blackness. Um, and that there's, I think value in that. there's benefit in that because that will allow us the possibility to to imagine and think other kinds of worlds um, that are not simply predicated on, what we are told is real, what we're told to exist, et cetera. Um, so I find some some hope in in being unrecognizable. I find a whole bunch of hope, actually. I find radical potential in being unrecognizable.
0: The question of unrecognition is really fascinating to me because there also feels like, feels like a tension. I mean, we mm-hmm. definitely, in the face of the state surveillance, we definitely mm-hmm. wanna be ungovernable, unrecognizable, mm-hmm. but I'm also thinking about how we've been like, so extremely deterritorialized and like the renegotiation of the social contract during COVID, and that mm-hmm. everyone is being kind of interpreted through social media, through the digital. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're talking about mutual aid, it has almost become like Kleenex, like synonymous with GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what does it mean to trust mutual aid as a process when you're giving to like a $1.5 million GoFundMe that you haven't met, that they get in the cut of, that has, you know, a whole series of actors. Um, and so I guess the two things is one, I have some like existential questions about like mutual aid as a mechanism in the form of the digital and how you're thinking about that with anarcho-blackness in this moment. Um, I was going to tag that to another question, but I feel like that's its own thing. So maybe we can start with that.
1: Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's really difficult um, because it seems very much so. And I might even venture to say it is in many ways the case that uh, we have to make recourse to these various kinds of um, apparatuses and frameworks and infrastructures uh, that have like billion dollar backings from various corporations um, that we are not down with at all. Um, it seems almost necessary to, to make recourse to those things because we have nothing else. Um, so with mutual aid and GoFundMe, uh, it seems absolutely necessary sometimes for many people that this is the only way that I might be able to pay my rent, I might be able to get food, um, that kind of thing. And on the one hand, I never ever want to want to deprive anyone from various avenues to to survive um, and even maybe to thrive. I don't want to do that. Um, but then on the other hand, absolutely, I know that that to to then contribute to this GoFundMe means that. I am, uh, in small part, complicit in, or maybe I don't want to use the word complicity, but um, part of the the capitalistic tentacles that I'm trying to that I'm trying to combat. Uh, so it's a negotiation, always a negotiation. I think for me, how I approach that, and maybe this is just me trying to soothe my own anxieties. Uh, maybe it's not. Maybe this is legitimate. I genuinely, genuinely don't know. Um, but where I am with that is, I was just having a conversation uh, with a friend of mine yesterday, actually. Uh, that there's there are some times when, say, me as an as an academic, as a professor in a university, um, and if my ultimate goal is to bring down the university and all the other kind of a professionalizing and bureaucratic and um, institutional uh, regimes in our midst, if that's my ultimate goal. Why then am I a professor? Uh, why am I uh, benefiting from from that? Why am I taking a check from them? Uh, why am I in the, uh, the university? All that kind of stuff. And sure, I, I see that. Um, but I think, though, my ultimate goal is the abolition of thoroughgoing abolition of everything. <laughs> um, on, in the interim, uh, because we have to live, um, because we need to, we need to move and survive on our way there. Um, it seems to me maybe even uh, part of the project to take as much of these resources as possible, which is to say to take back as much of these resources as possible. Because many, many, many of these institutions, the universities, the structures, uh, are operating on stolen resources, like fundamentally operating on stolen resources. So while I'm here um, and on my way to the abolition of those things, I'm going to try to take as much as I can back from that. And I mean back from that. Uh, and then disseminate that knowledge that those resources to the people um, to whom I'm in service. And so this I think relates to something like GoFundMe. Um, if it is predicated on we might say stolen resources, if it's predicated on uh, the the deprivation of funds and security from other communities, uh, then while we're here, hopefully perhaps we can utilize it to to get those resources back and disseminate them to those to whom we're in service. Um, so, I'm hoping that's ultimately the case. I don't know if it is. I don't know if that's a cop-out, but I'm hoping that that is a different way we can think about it, and that will allow us to, to maintain and endure in the interim on our way to the ultimate radical goals that we have.
0: Yeah, I guess to like narrow down the question, and I know that I said this to you before we started recording, but I mean, I, I do read Black Studies, but I definitely feel like I can never catch up to the reading that half the people who I know who have spent, you know, significant portion of their adult and adolescent life engaging in this have. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, it's funny, I feel like my biggest strength is I have a good sense of the known unknowns. I'm around computer scientists, policy people. I feel like I'm never the expert. I can never catch up to anybody's stuff, but I see like the points missing of connection. And if I was to make the most simple argument, I'm like... Black studies people, you paying attention to the digital? Because I just felt like, well, one, the history of the early internet was so many Afrofuturists, self described mm-hmm. like cyberpunks, I mean, and DARPA, right? And, and mm-hmm. military, funding. thing. <laughs> uh, but there, there was this fight to have public space on the internet, and that fight was overwhelmingly lost i mean it wasn't so simple and it was contested and um i don't know if you ever read andre brock's work on black digital technoculture but it's it really gets that black planet and how that was not just a place for like romance and matchmaking but also so many people learned how to code and so mm-hmm. like design unit interfaces through that and i just i wonder how much like the mutual aid community like even prior to COVID, was thinking about how do we what does it mean to build up like abolitionist infrastructure to support Mm -hmm. mutually, to support Mm -hmm. having public space on the internet, and also to support building relationships, because like you said, like, are there there sell-offs? Yes, but I think a lot of people are not. They're just trying to survive. I'm not blaming any individuals. I'm more thinking like, on an organizational level, how are we anticipating, you know, kind of this changing terrain and like, where do we have agency? Mm-hmm. As we identify mutual aid as like an important, not just value, but like practical way to build up these relationships.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I genuinely and I always want to make clear the where I don't know things. I don't know. I don't know. Um, one, one, I would point us to um, Dean Spade's work. Um, he has a book um, literally called Mutual Aid uh, that came out not too long ago. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal text. Um, so I'd highly recommend folks check that one out. Um, but I think just to give a really, really quick and deeply tentative uh, response, I think for me, I want to try to get myself and other people to think about how we might like reconceptualize uh, what it means to be together with other people. What it, what does it mean to be in coalition with other people? Which is to say, um, how can we how can we cultivate the conditions? For people to not have to make uh make uh GoFundMe um accounts like how can we cultivate the condition where that would not have to be a thing? So how can we think about say if someone in our community um is is struggling then like having. Already anticipating that 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 might be possible, and then having an open space in our in our own home, or having like a chain. So you're gonna stay here with us for uh, this week, and then someone else um got you next week, um and like that kind of thing. How can we think about, or how can we also like, I don't know, I'm 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 getting into budgeting right now. How can I like actually put into my budget? This is for community members. This is for this is money for set aside for other people because all the money that I make is not mine. Uh, so how can we re- even rethink those kinds of things too? How can we think about my salary as always and already um, given to other people? Because the salary that I make is not of my all of my own volition, but other people uh, kind of cultivated the condition for me to be here and do certain things. So there, it's imperative then that I give uh, some compensation, whether that be financial or whether that be uh, social capital or something like that, if we want to use the word capital, uh, how can we think about those things as well? That I think is how I want to move toward thinking through mutual aid and coalition, uh, really like infusing it into the fabric of how we live rather than when a crisis hits, then we go to these these places. How can we actually reconfigure the quotidian in everyday life around the around refusing that anyone should live in precarity, even for any amount of time. How can we utilize the thing that we have, the thing that we are in possession of, to, to be in service already anticipating uh, being in service of other people? I don't know exactly how to do that. I don't know how to organize around that. Um, that's, not, that's not my bag. Um, I'm, I'm someone who does different things, but I, I think that's part of how we ought to reconfigure fundamentally how we relate to other people.
0: Thank you. You know, just to be fair, I ask everybody on the show to come address all my deepest existential angst. So <laughs> I appreciate when people give it their best effort. Of course. Uh, but I think that 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 signpost of thinking about how we can be together, be with each other. What is sociality as there's always been this like hybrid of in real life and digital and technology. Um, and part of the reason why I'm holding this and thinking about it is I know that it was very, like, a big public conversation around Samaria Rice and Lisa Simpson, whose children were murdered by the police, um, calling out Sean King, LA, and thinking a lot about, like, how's the state's infiltration into the movement, facilitating grift, things like that. Um, and I think that you have taken the high road and not been on Twitter, <laughs> but I'm one of the Twitter uh, addicts, and I was just watching that part of that fallout resulted in some of the, like, self-identified black radical feminist academics being mm-hmm. called out first and people were claiming. And the reason I'm trying to, I'm like oversimplifying a little bit, but I w- I felt like both, this is a very hard phrase to use, but both sides had a point in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but those, the academics that were circulating kind of the parent statement about Sean King and BL, La were called out by other people saying, how can you say abolish black men mm-hmm. and try to be a spokesperson on behalf of Black boys murdered by the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw a part of that response being like, well, are Black academics propagating genocide and them saying, well, abolish doesn't literally mean to kill Black men, but to mm-hmm. abolish this category of Black maleness. And part of what I was thinking about how it relates to being together online is that you know, the affordances of social media, that algorithm prioritizes engagement and like exacerbates polarization. And then people don't have these relational connections to be generous, to really consider how the other person thinks, you know, like it's constantly Mm -hmm. prioritizing for engagement and it's difficult to see. It's difficult sometimes to have that nuance and interstitial space. Mm -hmm. And then also thinking about like that also in relationship to being in the hood, because a lot of these debates around gender as it relates to Blackness, to me, are happening very differently in the academy than they are in the streets. Yeah. Not to say that people in the hood don't talk about race and gender. I right. mean, people talk about it all the time. Right. But just, like, the categories, the frameworks, the, like, so everything is different. And so I'm just curious to hear your feedback on that.
1: Yeah, so mm, that's, a, that's a lot. You know, that's a lot, huh? so on So on the topic of Abolish black men, uh, and if I don't hit all your points, please just follow up with me. Um, but
0: I mean, I see. gave you twenty, so. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so 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 yeah. Okay, where where do I even start with this? So I am someone given to war or given to thinking and being a proponent of gender abolition, uh, and I can go on at length about what I mean. By that, but because I'm given to that, and I and I say given toward that, um, and not that I am a gender abolitionist, um, because I want to think about these things not as identities that one possesses, but um, modes of modes of living, modes of thinking, modes of doing uh, socio political things. Um, so I'm, I'm given to gender abolition. With that, then I'm. I'm going to say something, and then I'm going to spend a whole bunch of time trying to nuance it. So I'm I'm actually down with abolish mm, abolish masculinity, abolish manhood. I'm down with that. But we can also talk about um, the ways that uh, blackness modifies or thinks differently about the the manness or the masculinity. But that's another conversation. Uh, but I'm actually down with with that, and it's because it's because I understand uh, manhood, masculinity, as a disposition, as a posture, as a certain kind of a subjective sensorium. And that's a fancy way to say it. it's, it's about how you mobilize yourself and your ideas and your way of inhabiting the world uh, that defines manhood and masculinity. For me, it's deeply, deeply not about the kind of the kind of I'm i I'm, I'm gonna say, uh, sexed being that you are, but even that's woven into various kinds of political logics. Um, it's there. There are various ways that that gender and sex are assignments that then are carried out. Um, so for me, uh, it's about. It's not about one's ostensible anatomy anatomy or chromosomal makeup or anything like that, Um, but it's a disposition and a posture and a way of inhabiting and relating in the world. And that's how I understand masculinity and manhood. Uh, And if we understand it in that way, it also entails certain kinds of circumscriptions uh, and violences onto people, which is simply to say that um, to... Be a man or to have to be a man or to believe that one is a man is to then do madness, which is very much uh, enmeshed in uh, Violation in the kind of normative understanding of gender in the uh, violation of non normative genders all those kinds of things it curtails uh, the kind of a uh, breath that one could have um, and so Because I understand masculinity and manhood in that way, uh, then I am actually down with the abolition of that because it is a categorical violence onto the person that is said to be a man uh, and onto those that man is interacting with because manhood requires uh, the violation and vitiation of non-manhood, let's say. Uh, So all this then, I think, is to say yeah, let's let's abolish let's abolish that categorical uh, requirement. Um, but it's not to say that we are killing anyone. Abolition is deeply, deeply not about killing anyone. It's deeply non-punitive. Um, so that's just a for me a fundamental. But could
0: you please say about how blackness modifies it? Because I'm, I'm just going to be honest: is that mm-hmm. when you say abolish masculinity, abolish menness, categories of gender, mm-hmm. I got time for that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When I hear just no context, abolish black men. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've also been thinking about how many academics, and this is not just true of Black studies, but like mm-hmm. many like public facing academics don't have kids. Mm-hmm. It just really, and and I also appreciated in your book when you were talking about your brother's child and mm-hmm. how you tried to approach it from an ungendered perspective and really using their name yeah. and not just assuming a pronoun. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like I still. You know, I, I often don't use pronouns to refer to my kids, but I do feel like when we outside, I have black sons and mm-hmm. the idea of abolishing black men feels so easily weaponized. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just really like, I really want to understand because it does feel different than abolish gender versus abolish black men.
1: Right. Yeah. I hear that. I deeply, deeply hear that. Cause on the one hand, there's a way that society is going to view certain people in certain ways and that has that has meaning, that has a that has effects, um, and for me, uh, the abolition of of these categories is not a kind of overlooking of the effect that they that they might have. Um, it's, I think it's in fact a a an acknowledgement of the effect that they might have, and more so the the effect that I want there to be, or the or kind of imagining or yearning for a different way to inhabit the world. Um, so ultimately, I think for for me uh, the the non uses of pronouns for for my brother's kid Chase um, is an attempt to think about the possibilities Chase might have if Chase were not circumscribed already um, before Chase even had the chance to move in the world before Chase even had the chance has the chance to to think about what Chase wants to be um, to to give or to understand Chase as open that um, as as a kind of possibility uh, and that to me is is what is. Uh, curtailed or what is disallowed when we then uh, have the qualifier or the gendered uh, qualifier onto someone. It's the possibility that's that's disallowed. And I want to imagine that. Uh, and I want to try to uh, think about and cultivate the condition for that, precisely because if we can cultivate the condition for that, it's more possible. Uh, it's more possible then that someone will not be killed by virtue of them being, say, a Black man, because that category um, Uh, It's not a foothold on which or in which to then place a certain kind of violence, Uh, and so my interest is in trying to think about those kinds of possibilities. Um, It's not a. It's not a. closing my eyes to the condition of the now, um, I'm, I think I'm deeply, deeply aware, especially as someone who understands themselves as non-binary, but who is understood very much as a Black masculine person with tattoos. Uh, and so I'm, I'm deeply aware of how I'm read um, and how uh, other people are read similarly to me. Um, but the ultimate goal for me in thinking through gender abolition is to really, really uh, cultivate the condition for uh, depriving uh, these categorical footholds from there, from that that foothold and that that no longer being a, a foothold for uh, various kinds of violences uh, and for engendering other possibilities, possibilities that we don't even know yet. And that's the thing that I that I hope for. like what what might we have been uh, were it not for these categories that um, that that disallow certain kinds of movement, certain kinds of, uh, desires, certain kinds of understandings of ourselves. And that's to me where I want to take abolition into that realm, into the realm of possibility.
0: To whom do we appeal when we say, if we say abolish black men? Because part of it, I was thinking, like, mm-hmm. is that the sign at Ferguson? You know, I feel like the message to the parent when you're thinking about mm-hmm. not gendering your child is very different than mm-hmm. to, you know, do we go into prison and say abolish black men? You mm-hmm. know, I'm just trying to figure out, like, to whom does it appeal and how do we? Because what I do recognize in what you're saying, you know, to, to the degree I understand it, is is making is opening up room for possibilities that had been foreclosed by this construct of gender. Right. But at the same time, given who we are in the world is not just determined by our like internal decisions about right. ourselves, but how we're read and how we interact with the state, with each right. other. To whom do we say this abolished black men?
1: Yeah, I don't know for sure. Um, but I think what your question is making me think of is so I might, so I'm thinking of say some, some person who understands themselves as, as a, as a, as a man. Uh, and what if, what if that understanding of themselves as a man then meant that they had to do certain, that they had to, um, grow up and they had to treat women this way. They had to understand themselves this way. They had to treat uh, their, their friends in this way. All these ways that are predicated on having to be and understanding oneself as a man. What if that person didn't have to be that. What if that person could have been something else uh, and did not know that, did not even know that was a possibility, um, precisely because we understand these categories as natural, we understand these these categories as the only thing that are possible for us. Um, for me, I think I'm appealing to or want to appeal to the the beings and people who have not yet emerged or who have been disallowed from emerging uh, onto the scene. So we might have been so many different things uh, were it not for uh, having been told that this is our lot uh, and we are to take this and and do with it um, what we must. Um, we could have been so many other things uh, and that's to whom I'm appealing, I suppose. it's a. I think that's a slightly more abstract question or a response than you were expecting, but it's making me think about the ways that I want to, I want to think about the not only the possibility but the the likelihood, the reality even perhaps uh, that we might have been so many different kinds of things, so many different kinds of beings, so many different kinds of people. Uh, were it not for being told that you are a boy, and this is what boys do, and boys grow up to be men, and this is what men do. Uh, all those things that I think are infused within how we treat one another, how we see one another, um, in, in ways that those those ways that we see and, and understand and treat one another uh, disallow other things or uh, have disallowed other things. So I want to appeal to the people might not know yet or the people that we didn't know we could have become Uh, and that's perhaps a romantic and abstracted understanding or response to this um, but that's uh, that's what i hope for that's what i really really hope for that we could have uh, that we can understand ourselves as being something else um being otherwise perhaps in the language of this uh uh black critical theorist and theologian um uh, Ashawn Crowley, uh, that we could have been otherwise than we are right now. And in that otherwise, there's a possibility to abolish all the various things that are accosting us right now. So that's what I'm appealing to, who I'm appealing to, those things and people and ideas and desire that we might have been were it not for the ways that we've been circumscribed.
0: No, thank you. That's really, that's really helpful. I mean, I really don't have any a priori. Answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that just stood out to me is that the people who I saw pushing back on this idea of abolishing black men self-identified as like black poor women. Mm-hmm. And I know I sent you a link to mm-hmm. I have one listener to the show that calls me out because I bring up Tupac constantly. <laughs> <laughs> but I said you I, I think about Pac a lot and I and I just love that Nikki Giovanni got thug life tatted on her arm. Yes. Um I mean that's just like beautiful intergenerational love to me. Mm-hmm. But part of what I really appreciate in that talk that um, Tupac gave to Malcolm X Grassroots is thinking about like BC before crack Mm -hmm. and that there's this moment kind of as the Black Panther Party and this radical movement, you know, a lot in the 60s into the 70s is becoming dismantled. You see these kind of excellent and non-incarcerated Black people be going Mm -hmm. into Black studies and this feeling he was just expressing a feeling of abandonment and saying like the continuation of that narrative was his mother becoming addicted to crack was becoming incarcerated and just who was going to watch the kids if Mm -hmm. she was going out to the protests Mm -hmm. and like a feeling of like, I don't know, a division between the excellent blacks and the ratchets. Um, And a lot of how I think about like gender is so Also in response to like the crack era. Like I don't really see that being spoken about in academia, both in terms of like maybe some of like the black studies discourse that I have, that I'm familiar with, but also I think about that in terms of tech because everybody always assumes good intentions with Facebook has an algorithm that's constantly Mm -hmm. recommending and profiting from genocide. Mm -hmm. And people are like, but they're very well-intentioned. I'm like, clearly you've never, you know, been best friends with somebody who was well-intentioned and, you know, poison your whole neighborhood Mm -hmm. so they can survive. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm thinking about gender, it's not just like a decision or a category, but like, what are the ways in which that was like also mediated through building up like a form of governance that sent some people to prison, some people are welfare that broke up families that left people hating their mother, hating all women. Cause they only experienced foster parents, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm asking you a question about class in part. And mm-hmm. how do we think about that in terms of how this discussion happens?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to be honest too. I, I'm not, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not bad at, at thinking about this but I'm also not the best at thinking about this. Um, this is one of the things that for some reason I can I can speculate and think I need to think more about what those reasons are uh, but for some reason um, for me even though even though I grew up working poor in Philly, um, I, I have a harder time thinking about class in in ways that are satisfactory to me and especially to other people uh, and I, I genuinely wonder why that is. But in part, I think that might be because, I don't know, I think, and I'm drawing on um, Hortense Spillers for this too. Hortense Spillers, uh, wonderful, wonderful Black uh, critical theorist, Black literary scholar, Black feminist theorist, um, who in an interview said that for her, the the question or possibility of um, leaving the hood behind as it were, uh, was never really the case or never really a possibility because for her, she understood like where she was, the, the hood um, was with her, uh, which is not to say that um, she brought her her homies with her uh, when she was in university or when she's in university, um, but that because she was reared in those spaces, because um, like her very sensibilities were uh, cultivated in those kinds of spaces, um, she brought that with her to her work. Uh, she brought that with her um, in her kind of political responsibility. And things like that, and I feel that as well. I deeply, deeply feel that, which is not to say that I don't have oversights and things like that that I might uh, be given to or um, not remembering uh, where I come from, as as they say. Um, but I, I do feel that when I when I show up to, and especially with the way that I inhabit spaces, um, I'm someone who's who's quite critical of discourses surrounding a kind of uncritical embodiment. Um, but we can talk about that. But nevertheless, I'm quite quite aware of the way that I look when I show up Black with big hair, tattoos, um, and I wear sweatpants and hoodies and t-shirts all the time, like literally all the time I teach in these things. Um, and so I'm, I'm aware of of all those things. So when I show up or when the Black academic, let's say, if we can instantiate that as a figure, shows up, I want to, though this might be naive of me in part, um, but I want to understand that if this person, if I, since I uh, was reared and cultivated uh, in Philly uh, with my brother, who's three and a half years older than me, uh, with my mother, who has always been struggling financially, uh, I bring those things with me uh, and I think through those lenses uh, or those always weigh on me. I do the work that I do precisely because of them. Uh, and I also understand that the theorizing that I do uh, is has been... I've been trained in that not simply um by the academic uh and higher education institution that i've been in um, but by people like my mother they, my mother my grandmother my brother they are literally and i mean this they are literally theorists in different ways um they they theorize as barbara christian says, in the form of the hieroglyph um, so how then can i think about and be in service of via my work Um, The theorizing that my brother, uh, that my mom uh, have long been doing and have uh, kind of uh, taught me how to do and that I've gotten different kinds of training in in doing. But ultimately for me, I understand what they've done and how they've um, edified me uh, as always being present with me. Uh, And maybe that maybe that does. In fact, disallow me sometimes from actually attending to their needs, their um, aims and goals, et cetera. Um, but I want to, I want that to be a different way that we think about these things, but because hopefully perhaps then there will be a stronger feeling of responsibility that elitism might be might be mitigated. Um, and, I, and I hope that I don't, I'm not, uh, Guilty of that kind of elitism. Um, maybe maybe some people might accuse me by virtue of my addiction and things like that, um, but that also that has some anti-Black resonances that we can talk about. Um, but in short, I think, you know, I if we understand that when we show up to the university um, that we necessarily bring the hood with us, if that is where we come from, then I, I want that to, to weigh on us as a responsibility um, and to seep into our work, seep into the the thing that we express in faculty meetings, uh, in our in our books and things like that. I want, I'm hoping that an acknowledgement of that uh, and a feeling the weight of that will then have um, material effects as it were.
0: I guess I'm thinking about, and this is not to so like, adjudicate any individual's authenticity or their connection -hmm. connection to where they came from. Mm -hmm. But like, does this really necessitate the leaving, you know, what does it mean to think with the theorists that Mm -hmm. are in the hood together? Mm -hmm. And I don't mean, I mean like literally like geographically, physically co-located. Um, and because that's something that weighs heavily. I, one is that I'm actually a college dropout. I just read a lot and most academics don't. Um, <laughs> <particularly> <laughs> in tech. That's a fact. And so that's why I get the privilege of, you know, being at Columbia and Cornell and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the reading I did was when I was on at welfare. And I don't say that to say like the amount of income that I even had at that time. But I mean, like literally welfare was the thing that you had to go do thanks mm-hmm. to Clinton, <laughs> and work for your benefits. And so, so much of the theory that I was reading was like sitting, waiting for some random, you know, numbers and letters that they generate to call you, because they don't call you by name when you're waiting in the welfare office. <laughs> um, so much of it happened in that space with those people who are, were in those circumstances and had, you know, really great parenting skills and really terrible. And, you know, we're misogynist and we're, you know, really open-minded and, you know, just like a range, you know, it was just messy. Mm -hmm. Um, and just, I wonder, is there some unspoken thing about like, to do this, like radical work in the academy that there's a necessity to leave? Like, what does it mean to do this kind of thinking with people? Yeah. uh, Go back.
1: Yeah. It, I think it does feel that many, many people uh, assume that one has to leave. Uh, and I think that's in part because, one, because uh, the places that we presume that we can do these things are in universities uh, or are on certain kinds of campuses and certain kinds of places um, that are away from these, the communities that, that we find ourselves in. So um, there's this conflation of thinking, uh, doing intellectual work, um, being an in, in intellectual, a certain way that that is conflated with being at a university or being in a certain space that is suffused with that that connotation. And then there's the, these places are not here where the hood is. So then there's this conflation of, uh, I have to then go away from this hood to, to do this kind of intellectual work. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not down with that. I'm really, really not. Um, because some of the And again, I mean this too, some of the smartest people that I've known uh, have been from and still live in these communities. Uh, And I don't say that to romanticize that. Um, I say that because what I'm interested in is thinking uh, and, and how we think. And to me, when you have, when you have X amount of kids, uh, and then you have X amount of bills and X amount of money, and you have to think about how are all these things going to work and fit, and then I still need to go to work, I still need to make sure I know how to get to from A to B, and I need to make sure I'm on the lookout for people who might be predators and people who might be trying to kill me, all these things, that is thinking right there, that is like deep, deep thinking, uh, and people who have six figure salaries and who just like go to campus and then teach their class and then go back home and that's it, uh, don't have to think in that same way. Um, so because I'm understanding intellectual work um, and as a kind of vernacular intellectual, um, as, a, as a way, as a kind of a, like, to what extent is one committed to the practice of the the constant practice of thinking uh, that is done by people who come from the the slums, as it were, of Philly, or who are, uh, as Tupac said, in the gutter. Uh, like that's the kind of thinking that I uh, that I want to continue to equate with, or think as um, as intellectual work. And the people doing that are often not in universities, like deeply, deeply not in universities. Um. So, yeah.
0: Thank you. We almost at the hour mark. And so I wanted to give you a chance to kind of do the thing where you talk about the book. It's funny, <laughs> one of my friends who we've had on the on the show was Romy Morrison. And when I was like, so excited to send the snippets of the book, and they were like, yeah, they're doing something really interesting and kind of like subversive and controversial around like Black trans thought and what mm-hmm. does that mean? And it's interesting when you said some people will come for you around your diction mm-hmm. and just even that phrase, you start off the three thesis with um, this mention, this molten citation, but are mm-hmm. also around the boys. And mm-hmm. like, I've been rereading and reading uh, souls of black folk a lot. And mm-hmm. he's just so like, he would say diction, you know, he's mm-hmm. so uh, his vocabulary, his lexicon, and his stuff is very theoretical, but it's mm-hmm. not necessarily, legible as theory in the same way that we would think right. about now if we just right. like ordering the book. Right? right. Um But I also he was one of one, as I was just thinking about Alondra Nelson, who's now in the White House, but she was the first black sociologist um, to be inducted into that Yale sociology department at 136 years from its founding with the right. boys. Right. Um, but also he spent, he's one of the first data journalists. Like he went to mm-hmm. the farm, scanning, gathering all these data and making pictures. And so also interesting to think about him in relationship to leaving and going back. And what does mm-hmm. that mean? Um, but yeah, I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk about that, those three theses. And what are you saying about gender in this book?
1: Yeah. So yeah, so this book, this book, oh goodness. So I was told um, by... Advisors in, in grad school, because I, I wrote this book um, in grad school and it, it came out um, my last year of grad school, uh, and I was told by certain advisors to don't write this book, don't publish the book, you need to focus on the dissertation, um, because this other project, the distraction from the dissertation, uh, and there's a whole bunch of stuff there, like it was taking them forever just to get feedback back to me, so I'm, I'm not just going to sit here and wait for you, um, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. So yeah, this book was, was written, was discouraged, um, but was written in grad school. And I realized coming into grad school or going into grad school that um, I, I didn't do as much writing as I, as I wanted to or as I was expecting. Because you get to the grad seminar, you read this book or these articles, and then you talk about it, and then you go back and you do the same thing for like 12, 13 weeks, and then you write a final paper and that's kind of it. And I am someone who thinks through my writing a lot. Um, Like for me, writing is a vehicle for thought, uh, for thought and thinking. And so because I was learning some like super cool things, that's when I was introduced to Fred Moten, who I absolutely adore. Uh, So I needed to, I needed to write things down uh, in order to, in order to, to think through these things. And I needed to write them down in a language that felt, that felt true and genuine to me. Uh, and part of that language is profanity. And part of that language is uh, black vernacular. And part of it is things that my mom and my grandma and my brother would say. Um, so I needed to do that. And so the book and the essays in the book, the compilation of all the kinds of thinking that I felt compelled to do while I was in grad school. Um, and it underwent a whole bunch of revision, of course. But that book is in many ways me attempting to, or me coming to thought, me coming to the kinds of thinking with respect to the Blackness, uh, Black feminism, uh, and and trans theorizing uh, in in grad school, because these things were super, super, they weren't new to me, but they were being conceptualized in ways that were thoroughly iconoclastic, and I wanted to I wanted to I wanted to give discursive shape to those things in my own language uh, and attest to the ways that um, like my upbringing uh, and people that I grew up around uh, and the things that I was seeing uh, were manifestations of the things that people are theorizing in the academy so that's where the book came from and then with respect to like what I'm trying to say or what I tried to say with respect to, to gender with respect to non-normative gender is that there is there are there are resources working through, the ways that we fracture and subvert normative gender, which might be to say gender. Um and there's there's something useful and and important there. And I wanted to to tease those things out. I wanted to think more rigorously about them than other people I encounter were thinking about them. Cause on the one hand you have people who when you say black feminism, they just think, oh, you're talking about black women. Like that's not entirely what this means, or when you're when you're talking about uh, trans studies or trans theory, you're thinking about uh, people who have undergone uh, gender confirmation surgery. And, like that's not quite it either. Um, so I, what I try to do in that was think about how can I take the the way that someone like Fred Moten or Hortense Billers is theorizing Blackness, and how can I take the way that someone like C. Riley Snorton or Susan Stryker uh, are thinking about transness uh, and, and, and non-normative gender, how can I articulate that in a way that is that is not simply about the the, the academic theory, uh, which I'm someone who's, um, I, I love that theory, um, but in a way, that's not simply that, but also attentive to how these things are uh, manifesting in, in different spaces. Uh, or, or, like, So if I'm, if I'm in Ithaca at, at grad school and there's a person there who is uh, being mocked and tormented uh, on the commons for their gender, how is that site uh, really, really rich with thinking about uh, the way that non-normative gender fractures sociality in ways that might be given toward conceptualizing gender differently conceptualizing the social differently uh, so i really wanted to try to highlight those those moments the quotidian moments as well as the moments where uh where we can think about these things in more subtle more nuanced ways um and 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 in a language that was Playful in a language that uh, was inviting and accessible and all those things. So if I talk about Lil Wayne, I might get my brother um, into this. And he's not someone who's going to read Judith Butler or Fred Moten, but he's going to read something about Lil Wayne or something with a Lil Wayne lyric in it. Um, So it's inviting. Uh, It's a different way to invite people into the conversation. Uh, And that's what I primarily tried to do, wanted to do.
0: No, for sure. The book is very inviting. I mean, you know, shout out to everybody who got stuck with all my screenshots as I was like sending people (laughs) snippets of the book. I'm like, oh, this is wow. Um, And actually to your last one of my last questions is how did your family Receive the chapter when you're talking about your brother's child and mm-hmm. how you're approaching it. You know, oh, one, I mean, do they read the book actually? Because my family doesn't engage with anything. All I know is I could pay my rent. I'm not asking them for money, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't engage <laughs> <laughs> with my work beyond that. So, did they read the book and did they respond to that, to those reflections?
1: So they actually did not read the book. Uh, And at first I lamented that because my family is also someone like they, there might be, there's one book probably in that entire house uh, and it's gone unread. Um, And so they have not read the book. But while I used to lament that I don't anymore and it's because by writing the book, I'm able to better engage with them, better think alongside them. So now having written the book and having really sat with the, the kind of a, the things that, they, that they've that taught me uh, indirectly, um, I can now engage with them in a different way. So I can go, and I've done this, uh, I can go home now uh, and uh, I'm sitting in the living room. Uh, I love cartoons and my grandma loves watching TV. She, she'll be 71 on uh, on Saturday and we're sitting in the living room watching TV. I'm watching a cartoon, cartoon Bob's Burgers. And uh, one of the characters uh, is, is the daughter, the oldest daughter, uh, but she's voiced... Um, by a grown man. Uh, And then my grandma kept saying, kept calling the daughter he. And that allowed me to open up a conversation about uh, where we locate gender, gender performativity, non-normative gender. Uh, And that was possible because I, um, because I wrote the book, because I uh, sat with thinking about how can I uh, think about the ways that my family, my upbringing, uh, kind of birthed me into thinking in these ways. Uh, how can I um, better engage with someone like my grandma, who's 71 years old uh, and has never read and will never read Judith Butler? Um, I wrote the book, uh, and now I'm able to have that conversation with my grandmother uh, and other people. Um, so while they have not read it, um, they have they have encountered it through me. They've encountered it through the things that I've shared with them and through the ways that I've, I've told them that they've edified me. Um, So I don't I don't at all lament that they haven't read it. Um, I am actually quite grateful that I was able to write it because of them and then able to allow the book to encounter them via my having written it.
0: No, that's fair. I'm just thinking, I'm just reflecting it on my own life and you know, the yeah. silences and the coming together that's, in my own yes, family. Yes, yes,
1: yes. The silences are, the silences are profound sometimes. Like you saying all this stuff, uh, that you think is super dope. And then they're just like, mm-hmm, okay. And it's like, come on y'all. But, but I, I, there's a, there's a level of, of understanding that I now have, uh, having written the book and having sat with, um, the fact that I am a first generation college student, letter own PhD holding person, uh, so I have a, I think I have a, a deeper understanding of what that might mean, or, or what that what that silence could mean, the possibilities in that silence. Uh, it still hurts sometimes, um, but uh, there's more there's more generosity there, and also perhaps even more um, nuance in thinking about what that can mean, what they might be doing in that silence. Um, so maybe it's not simply silence, um, but maybe it's maybe it's meditation, maybe it's sitting with. Thought uh, maybe it's the refusal to to respond in disagreement, maybe simply sitting with uh, what that could possibly mean because it's coming from me, and so maybe it's more important to them. All those things uh, are, are possibilities now for me in a way that they weren't before. So there's a I'm, I'm quite grateful for the way that I'm much more patient uh, and gracious uh, with respect to um, my my family, and the way that they I think are more patient and gracious with me in light of that.
0: Well, it's funny, most of my family our children and then I got a lot of kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for them, my work, particularly the podcast Mm -hmm. literally means not being with them and they gotta be Mm -hmm. somewhere else. Or they quiet.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but then when I get paid, they're like, Yo, do more of that. We want Beyblades. Mm -hmm. Like you know, (laughs) basic on a certain level. They like, we don't know what you talking about. (laughs) But yeah, go do that. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, no, it's interesting, you know, how does this because a lot of times we think about like the political and the theoretical as existing out there. Yes. Like how does this play out right yeah. here where yeah. you at? And yeah. so that's real to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, and that I think is, is when politics and when the political uh, is most potent. Like what does that mean for for how I'm um, like literally moving through the world, interacting with people, caring about and for people. That to me is a profound kind of politics. And, and ideally what the political and what the theory is doing, uh, how can it make an impact in people's lives? That's ideally what it does or what it ought to do.
0: So I could talk to you for much longer, but one, I wanna emphasize for our listeners to, and we'll link it in the show notes, to go and get Them Going Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism, I just, I really fuck with this book. I just, I, I like, I enjoyed it. It brought me joy. And um, I just felt like it made these concepts like really accessible and made me look at them anew. So I really appreciate that. And then second is we got a ritual at the end of the show. If you could share something, like a recommendation for our listeners, something on topic and off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be something you're reading, listening to, watching. Somebody recommended, like, go see your nearest river. I mean, you could really... Anything they would like to recommend?
1: Yeah, so thank you so so much for this. I'm so glad the the book brought you some joy because that's precisely what I wanted to do. I just like, is this going to make people more alive? Make people feel more alive? Uh, then, I mean, that's 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 what I wanted to do with the book. So deeply deeply appreciate that. In terms of recommendations, uh, one on topic. Oh goodness. I actually, I just um, finished reading this um, book that just came out not too long ago um, by Kevin Quashie called "Black Aliveness." Um, phenomenal, phenomenal book. Oh my goodness! Like the writing is exquisite, absolutely exquisite. Uh, so I'd highly recommend that one. It's about black social life. Um, it's about being like blackness and its possibilities for being alive rather than being uh, circumscribed by pervasive anti-black death. Uh, so that is on topic. Off topic, and I have I have to mention this. Um, so I'm growing into a an even bigger nerd than I was before. And um, <laughs>
0: my partner
1: and I, and my partner's brother, uh, we've been getting into Magic: The Gathering, and that shit is amazing, like absolutely amazing. And I've been doing that pretty much nonstop. Uh, there's so much, just so much there. One is just super fun to me, but also like there's a whole bunch of There's a whole bunch of things I can read into it uh, via, um, in particular via Blackness, uh, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to ruin people's day, uh, at least not quite yet, Uh, but it's it's super, super fun. I'd recommend, folks, just try it out. If you're into, like, tabletop games or anything, like, even marginally nerdy, I highly recommend uh, Magic the Gathering because it's just super fun. So, yeah, those are my two recommendations for y'all.
0: No, thank you. I mean, we need to be getting into tabletop games oh my um, with this never-ending pandemic. That's- I mean, I don't think everybody's like the new normal. I'm like, there's no, this, nope. this is it. This nope. is what we got. Nope. Um, so this is the We Be Imagining podcast. Please write us, y'all. Webeimagining at gmail.com. Again, check out Marquis Space, Them Goon Rules, and you can listen to this podcast on, you know, your favorite websites, the university website, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts. And that's it, y'all. Thank you.